House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Well, welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren on the other side of the world, Mr. Eric Shapiro. How you doing, Al? Delicious. Am I really on the other side of the world? I thought we're on one coast. You're in Vancouver. I'm in Northern California. Well, no, it's it's not real. You know, the world oh, okay. is, the world's flat. It's flat. Come on. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's that sort of episode. Yeah, we haven't been to the moon. We've got to get in the horror, <laughs> sci-fi, all this sort of stuff, because we've got a guest that's writing scary stuff. You know? Yeah, he absolutely is. Yeah, and uh, at a generation top level. Well, there, there we go. How else can you start it? So, Mr. Josh Mellerman, thank you for being on the show. Hello. I'm just impressed that you believe in the moon at all. <laughs> you said we haven't been there. I, I, I'm, I'm of the mind there isn't one. <laughs> well, you might be right. This is why we haven't been there. <laughs> yep. It's, exactly. it's an illusion. The deep state. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wow. We're going to start there. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, steep starting point. Yeah, it's pretty deep. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Josh, how, how does one uh, become a successful horror writer like you? Oh, man. Um, you know, some people, so when the movie of Bird Box was made, a lot of people asked me, you know, this has got to be the most surreal thing ever. Sandra Bullock is playing your main character. Mallory, you wrote this character alone in an attic space in Detroit. Like you, this has to be so surreal. And it is, and it was, but I don't think anything will ever top, you know, when you're alone writing these novels and there's a sort of almost like a black and white fantasy of like your books on the shelf one day, you know, and meetings with agents and editors and these kind of things. And then to actually see the details of that fantasy filled in, in color when, you get your first book deal when Bird Box first comes out, when you're going to your first horror convention. Talk about sort of a surreality. It was this unbelievable moment for me when Bird Box, Bird Box is the first book of mine to get published, and I had written some 14 before then. And, um, and so. 14, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have a lot to talk about. Okay. Well, we, we do because I didn't even, um, I never shopped any of those books, not okay. one of them. Uh, I was in a band uh, that was touring uh, America and Canada regularly, about 200-something shows a year for six, seven years. I, I was writing books not as a hobby. This was, like, the real deal. But I also never shopped them, never sent them to agents, this kind of thing. And if you want to know the story, I'll give it to you real fast. A friend of mine from high school called me and said, hey, man, I see online that you're, you're posting, you're writing a new book every month, it seems, right? And he asked me, if he could send one of my books to a lawyer that he knew that represented authors and actors. Mm -hmm. And I was like, uh, yeah. And that night I like feverishly chose one of the books. We sent it to this lawyer. The lawyer called me and he said, I'd like to represent you. I have a manager in mind for you. Manager called me and, and I've been working with that guy now for like 13, 14 years. So, wow. Okay. Wait, I, so you chose one of the 14. It wasn't bird box. It was one that ended up not getting published or what was it? No, it is published now. It's one called Goblin. Oh, okay. and, and, and the thinking behind it was so, wow, talk about novice. I chose Goblin because it's a collection of novellas, 
And I figured, oh, if they don't like the first one, they'll like the second one, maybe, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> not, not thinking uh, or even knowing or having any way to know that a collection of novellas is a much harder sale, sale than a novel. Got it. Um, okay. So in your opinion, these 14 books, so these are all, you said one was a collection of novellas. I would imagine most of them were novels. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. And yep. In your assessment, of course, you're now not only a professional, but a, but a notably successful one. In your assessment, looking back, were they all worthy of publication? Were they all strong? Oh, yeah. Uh, Unbury Carroll was in that batch. Inspection was in that batch. Goblin. So you, had, you, basically, um, you had a whole drawer ready to go once it exploded with Bird Box. Yep. Okay. And I and I've made it a very uh it's a very conscious effort not to change my work sort of a schedule or routine since Bird Box came out. So what that means is I'm still writing about two books a year, but releasing like one. So now that, that pile of fourteen has grown to like thirty-five. And wow. there are in and I've published, I think Daphne will be like number eleven. So there are twenty-four other novels like in this office, like in a freight right next to me actually. wow yeah. so what are we talking about like uh, as far as an average or ballpark range like what are the word counts generally um i, I love that question man. <laughs> <laughs> because, I'm, because i'm a numbers guy and i've actually it's a little weighted because there's um one book that's three hundred thousand. uh okay. so I, I would say the average though is probably if you add them all together probably like 95 something like that oh uh, okay got it got it okay so um, Al's first question out the gate was the thing I've been wondering about for the past couple of days, knowing I would talk to you. Tell us, like, how you get from the first publication of Bird Box, which puts you on the map, to the dream moment with Sandra Bullock being attached to the movie. So the whole time that I was with Ryan, Ryan's the manager I mentioned before, Ryan Lewis, and he'll, he'll come up a lot in this talk. He always, he always does. And Ryan... And and I, we were, uh, I guess you could say, with his advice or tutelage, I was rewriting Unburied Carol, right? This is the very first thing we did together. And with the intention of shopping it. And then after about a year and a half of that, I sort of suddenly said to Ryan, like, hey, I think there's another book in this in this lot that is a better debut, a better how do you do? Because Unburied Carol is a Western, I don't know, it might just seem like I write Westerns, I don't, let, you know, let's do something else. So... I entered, I showed him Bird Box and he was like, okay, let's, let's do this one instead. And we spent a year and a half rewriting that one. And the whole time that I was working on Bird Box, he kept saying to me, man, the minute this gets a book deal, I am going to sell the film rights to this book. Mm -hmm. And he kept saying it. And I think I was one of his first novelists, if not his first, he had worked with a lot of screenwriters before. And so I had no reason to like, believe him. Like, seriously, I had none. I was like, this guy's a brilliant dude. He's a total straight shooter, total stand-up guy. And I just believed him. And the, we work on Bird Box for a year and a half. So now that's three years of working together without really shopping anything yet. Then we shop Bird Box. It gets picked up by HarperCollins. And a few months later, Ryan had sold uh, the film rights to Universal. Wow. Okay. Well, what was his, where did his confidence stem from? Was it the, I mean, obviously you and your talent, but was he particularly beholden to the premise? He's like, this is so hot, it's sellable. Like, what was his mindset? You know, I've never asked Ryan that question, and Ryan and I have talked just about every day. We talked today already. Just about every single day for 14, 15, whatever years it is now. And I've never once said to him, what, what, 
What were you leaning on there? I just assume, yeah, I assume it's what you just said. I think it's also, he had, um, I don't know, him and I have like a lot in common in terms of um, our belief in, uh, what, how would you explain this? Like the momentum of a thing, right? Whereas if you, where, if you stay in motion, you may not end up exactly where you see yourself ending up, but you're going to end up somewhere. And I think Ryan, who lives by that momentum, sensed that in me. And we both saw that in Bird Box. I think we both were just like, something is going to happen with this book. Wow. Okay. Okay. So now let's, let's flash forward to the present tense. And what, what is coming up? Before we uh, started recording, you said you, you had gotten an advanced reading copy of something brand new. And you had a box near you you're looking at. So what's, what's coming out now? Oh, I'm so excited. I literally just got the box um, of the ARCs of Daphne. Daphne comes out September 20th. And essentially, I mean... Yeah, I guess Daphne is a slasher story. It is. But really what it is is, like, it's um, uh, Daphne is sort of the embodiment of, like, a, uh, a panic attack, right? So, so like, when you're freaking out, if, if either of you have anxiety or any listeners, I'm sure someone in, in the vicinity. Oh, I absolutely do. Um, yeah, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so if you're freaking out, like, the, the last thing you want to talk about is anxiety while you're suffering with it. And then when you're not freaking out, the last thing you want to talk about is anxiety because you're not dealing, like, I don't want to bring it about. And so Daphne right. essentially, uh, like a, a monstrous ghost in this uh, town in Michigan where so long as you don't think about her, she's not going to come for you. This, and I hadn't set out to write, you know, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a book about uh, mental struggles. I never even looked at it that way. Right. But early on in the novel, I realized like, oh, I, I, I relate to this story more than even most that I myself have written because I deal with anxiety as well. Wow. Okay. So uh, was that different for you to take an emotion, like a sort of abstract emotion as a starting point? Another great question. Um, yes. Uh, different enough. I had done it. Um, in there's a book I wrote called Pest that is one of my uh, I, I think I got a soft spot with me in okay. that one a guy is um, suffering well, for the first time in his life he's starting to have like self-doubt I guess you could say Okay, and he believes that an entity in his house is you know zapping his lust for life that he's not depressed he's not down something must be doing this to him okay. so he sets out to trap essentially he sets out to trap depression in, in his in his apartments and i guess you could argue daphne is a very similar idea like years later so what what is where is all the momentum and velocity coming from you sound incredibly impassioned your passion is contagious is there just a to what do you trade or maybe it's something uh, trace, or maybe it's something in your upbringing. All this enthusiasm for the art form. I don't know. You know, the, the other singer of the High Strong, Mark Owen. Him and I have talked about like that. Maybe we're blessed for being late bloomers. We didn't start playing music till we were like nineteen. Um, whereas our a lot of our friends started at like age ten or eleven. You know, as like kids, right? And we knew people at age nineteen who were already, you know, like oh, I gotta, I gotta get serious in life. <laughs> you know, you're like nineteen, right? And that's like when we started. So by 30, we were just starting to hit sort of like, like we were like, felt like we were finally good at the guitar. You know what I mean? And I didn't write my first novel. I tried from 19 to 29, but I didn't finish one until I was 29. And so I, I think that there's a blessing there too, because the, the, uh, the fuel for having finished a book, you know, if, if I was like writing novels for all of my 20s, I might be like, oh, this is life. This is how it is. But I had a decade of futility before then, 
like a decade of trying and trying and not pulling it off. And I think that the late bloomer thing actually kind of gives you the gas to like keep going, keep going when a lot of other people maybe get exhausted. Right. They're, out. they're over it by that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you might be running out of time. <laughs> well, <laughs> well that's, enc- that's encouraging. Oh, thank you. Uh, no, no. It's, it's, and and is it? What's the challenge of, of of having a success? Like, so when something all of a sudden becomes a big thing, like Bird Box, and now you've got Daphne. Do do you feel Daphne? Do you feel a pressure to follow up Bird Box? Trying to explain. It's like, can can you answer that question without being political by or without being um what's the right word? Uh, hedging by saying yes and no, and but it's true, like. Let's take, okay, for example, let's take Mallory, which was literally the sequel to Bird Box, right? And it came out last year. And you'd imagine, like, man, there has to be some pressure. I mean, this is Bird Box is a bestseller, and the movie's the biggest movie in Netflix history. You're sitting here, like, writing Mallory alone in this office, and the whole world's different now. I wrote Mallory to the, to the vinyl soundtrack from the movie of Bird Box. Like, that was playing in the, in the room. So, like, talk about a different experience, but... Yes, there's a sense of, oh, man, this better do well. And this other sense of, like, hey, you've written 20 now or whatever it is. Like, do exactly what you do. Just do it. And I, and I was able to, like, wholly 100% freely write Mallory and then Daphne and while also being aware, like, oh, man, I really hope this does well. I, both are absolutely in the room at the same time. Well, yeah, and there's the pressure and there's also the matter of uh, the question I was going to ask was, perspective and i think you answered it because you said just you know you, you have to hone in and concentrate and discipline yourself to keep the same mandate you always have and not not think too much about the broader picture yeah you know this this might sound a little cosmic a little hippie to you guys but when i lived in new york city um went back when i was like 22 with my bandmates and we were all like getting wasted every night and had friends over every night and all this stuff and i was i remember i was in the basement of where we all lived and i was alone and everyone's upstairs, like, partying and loud and crazy. And I just remember making a conscious effort. I told myself, listen, there are a lot of distractions here. There's uh, drinking. There's uh, partying. There's hanging out. There's the fact that you're broke. There's um, uh, uh, ambition for success. There's fear of failure. A million things could distract you from working on songs and or books right now. I need you, Josh, to put writing and art, whatever this is for you, in a safe place in your in your mind in your heart in your whatever where it's untouchable whether that whether that means you uh keep writing joyously be, uh, while suffering you know decades of uh futility or or being broke or whatever or if something amazing happens here and you and you break through and, and you're living off this i don't want that that can't distract you either and i made this i truly made a conscious effort at that age and i feel like where i put writing if that makes if you could think of it as a noun where i put writing it's still there it's still in a place that's like it's a it's a place i can go that is like completely innocently just crazy about horror and writing novels well yeah i'm glad you took it in a cosmic direction and incidentally you're in the right place for that like so what you just described correct me if i'm wrong because i'm going to use a very specific word seems to me like the core seed of manifestation like in other words there was a detachment from the outcome a detachment from expectation. There was nothing binary, like it's pass or fail, it's succeed, succeed or, or fail or whatnot. And you just embraced the total joy of it and let it, let it do what it wanted to. Is that accurate? 
Yep, and that's the best I've ever heard uh, this articulated before. I've never heard it put exactly how you just said it. And I wish that I had heard that years ago because you just put like a smile on my face. That's exactly what it is. It's non-binary. It's not pass or fail. Um, yeah, it's manifestation, but you, I, I try to be careful with that because I don't want, I don't want, you know, the wrong person hears me saying that and they're, they're thinking I'm talking about the book, The Secret. Right. right? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, The Secret actually has it in reverse because it's all about visualizing something. In your case, you, you did the opposite. You didn't hold a vision. You just, uh, stepped back from it. You're like, this is going to be about my joy and my energy. A hundred percent. And it goes back to that. And it goes back to that the theory of momentum from a second ago. You okay. know, stay in motion. You may not end up, you're not going to end up exactly where you like see, like, I'm going to be in the, you know, uh, the top of the New York Times bestseller. I'm going to be sipping right, champagne. Right. But because you're in motion, you will end up somewhere extraordinary. And, and so, just, yeah. You just sensed this intuitively. This was just like some, somewhere you arrived at in terms of your attitude and your feeling. Is yes, hundred percent. And how yep. old, how old were you when that happened? I, I well, I had a moment which this actually is is incredible how this ties into Daphne. So okay. there's a scene in Daphne that is a hundred, and this is the first time I've ever done this, a hundred percent a recreation of a scene from my life. And what happened was when I was nineteen, I was just sitting at my mom's house, and I, you know how you'll have like a thought cross your head, like um, uh, do unto others as you have done to you, whatever, like a cliche almost. And most of them, they come in and I'm like, yeah, of course, that's real. That's true. But the idea of you can do whatever you want with your life, like, crossed my mind at 19. Okay. But it wasn't just something to say. It was like, mm. it was like a worldview, a perception, a truth, an entire truth that took root immediately. Right. And I was so freaking scared that I called 911 on myself. Wow. Okay. So I'm at okay. my mom's house and I'm like... Wait a minute. I no, I, I literally can't. I remember I was standing behind this couch when it hit me. And I'm like, wait, like I can do anything I want with my life. Like I like literally yeah. anything. I'm anything. And it, the, the possibilities were so real and so true and so like overwhelming that I called 911. They came, an ambulance okay. came, and when they when they <laughs> when they got there, they were like, So you're telling us you call us because you realize you can do whatever you want with your life? And I'm like, Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'm going to point to that moment as the moment where it was almost like truth too soon, too much, too fast. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to point to that moment as the answer to your question. That would be the moment where even if I was living like it before, like, you know, maybe you see breadcrumbs after the fact. Right. Right. But that right. moment, that's sort of almost psychic, like psychotic break or something. I was going to say that. Yeah. Not, not, that, yeah. that, that, not that that's why I think it was, but it felt like that. Yeah, but the you know, and it, 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 this is this it's sort of that same duality again. It was absolutely horrifying, but you knew while experiencing it that this was going to lead somewhere good. God, okay, and I love when you also said that it was a worldview, an attitude, and a truth, but it wasn't like a message. There was nothing about it that pointed to you propagandizing or here's what I'm going to say. And here's what I'm going to impart. Oh, and no, pose. no, no, it no. Was, it was almost like your soul's vibration. Yeah, yeah. It was just like, hey, Josh, like you could literally walk out of this house right now and keep walking until you die. You can hitchhike. Right. You can start a business. You can kill someone. You can right. marry someone. You can, you can right. like, you could write a novel. You could take literally whatever you want to do right now, you could do. And it was like, 
Yeah, there was nothing like zilch. Um, uh, yeah, I'm religious or 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 any nothing in that universe at all. Right. And well, what I'm getting again, and forgive me if I'm being redundant, because I want to take it back further into your roots, if I may. I am getting this this extraordinary sense of joy, and I've found that uh, repeatedly among people that are highly successful, like yourself. So there's this innate. Oh, I don't want to use the word innate because maybe it's received or maybe it came at some point. But, like, have you always self-identified as, I don't know if joyful is maybe the word, maybe it's lit or impassioned or, like, you have a fervor. Like, like how far back does that go into your memory of yourself? Uh, yeah, forever. Forever. 100% forever. And then the other, hand in hand with that is, so you said forever. So, and I can only imagine, now I'm picturing you as a little kid who's coming online with cognition, right, like age four. Have you always been creative? Has that always been part of the joy? Yep, I uh, tried to write a novel in fifth grade, failed. It still kind of bothers me that I didn't finish it. It's amazing to have right now. Um, after that, I tried to write comic books, wrote the dumbest emo poems you've ever heard in your life, uh, short stories, and, and so forth. Yeah, that, it's always, like I said, like those are almost breadcrumbs now to an artist, to a writer's life, that at the time, you know, I was on the track team. I was doing a million other things. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't thinking, I'm a writer in high okay, school, yeah. you know? But meanwhile... I was writing like 40, 50 page stories and things. So like you were a writer. You just didn't know it, man. Like that kind of thing. Right. Where does, um, and music was such a big part of your life and it was also sustained and there was momentum and it was professional. So where does music stand for you now? Well, the band is still together. We finished an album recently. I mean, look, look, we're, a friend of mine told me never start a sentence with look, and he's right. Never say look. <laughs> that sounds look. political. Uh, I, have to, I have to remember that one, yeah. Look, you know? <laughs> anyway, um, my friends, they, they have been playing, like I told you, since we were like 10, and we've all been best friends since then. I was like, again, like on the track team, I'm like writing poems, blah, blah, blah. At around age, around that age 19 area, they were like, hey, man, you write. We play music. Maybe we can do something together. And they kind okay. of, Derek, the drummer, and Mark, the other singer, and I had like a moment in a basement where I'm kind of playing this Farfisa organ, just playing C and G. Derek's playing drums, and Mark is reading those poems that I wrote and some that he wrote. And it was a moment of like, oh, oh, okay, this is a song. And Mark and I were just like, you know, bitten. We, we've, we've made something like, I think Mark and I recorded like a few hundred songs together or something. So... Like the the two paths have gone like you know parallel this entire time music and books. Got it. So it sounds like they scouted you. So your relationship with them did not precede the band. They you were like on their radar. They're like this guy writes really dope stuff. And can you can you be a part of us and start working with us? No 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 no. We no. were we were all we were friends. We were okay, all like okay. tried grass for the first time together. We went to okay. summer camp. But it kind of reached this point of like we're all hanging out every day. We all play music. You write. Let's do something with this. And it was, it was definitely like their, you know, Derek's uh, push more for that. And Mark kind of like opened that door for me. It wasn't, I didn't set out like, I'm going to do this, you know? Right. So your metabolism, this, this uh, passion I keep referring to, is it in the, the books and music? Do you find that uh, your work is metabolized to the sort of rhythm of you? Like there's speed and there's size and there's uh, appetite and all these things. Well, Gosh, you know, you want to be careful, right? Because, right. because I'm like writing, I, I, I'm writing horror novels and I legitimately want to scare someone. And, and you'll find yourself like, like, what's the right phrase? Like almost giddy in the office, right? Okay. I remember one time I asked this poet in Chicago, or I told him we were like drinking after a show. And 
I was like, hey, man, I want to write like the, the, the great optimistic novel, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and he was like, well, isn't the act of writing just in and of itself optimistic? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, well, because it implies that there's meaning. It implies that someone would be interested. It implies that you are ex- expressing yourself and like just the act of writing at all. And I was like, wow, that's good. And when he kind of, he kind of like it almost, that thing he said almost stopped me from ever becoming a caricature of myself. It was like, you don't need to write like, I am this. Like The fact that you're doing it all implies that you are this. Right. That's really good. But that said, with that in mind, uh, not to cut across the point you just made, but are you an optimist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 100%. I, I have, um, what do you call, like, for a while I went around, like, to high schools around here in Michigan, and I was talking about, like, sort of the difference between um, being an optimist and being naive. And, and, and being naive, you don't know the score. But the optimist okay. does. And the optimist chooses to react or reacts in a uh, in a way that denotes progress or okay let's let let you know this situation sucks let it sting for for a minute and then we're going to move on and we're going to keep going whereas the naive naive doesn't even know what the hell's going on and right. i think that oftentimes those two terms are easily uh mistaken for each other Ooh. and i'll see that kind of thing on twitter all the time where people are like oh this guy is like you know he doesn't you know he's an optimist he doesn't know what's going on i'm like no 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 that's not you got that you know, when people say he says it like it is, they're never talking about someone like an optimist. They're never right, talking right. about someone who compliments you. Like, Eric, if you walked in and you were like, hey, yo, uh, you know, to your girlfriend or your friend or whatever, you're like, hey, you look good today. No one would ever say, Eric says it how it is. If you walk right. in and we're like, yo, buddy, right. that shirt looks terrible. They'd be like, Eric says it how it is. And so, but that scares me in a way, because doesn't that imply that it is is negative or is like the only truth is what's wrong what's negative what doesn't uh, yeah what i know what you mean. Sound it's funny because the way things are going it's almost reversing i think because uh we, especially with the pandemic with the political situation there's so much unrest it almost seems like the overt in our face baseline has become negative so it's almost like a reversal of what you're describing is overdue where to tell it how it is is maybe to revert to something more optimistic at this point. Because it's like, wait, hold on a second. We're still going to survive. You know, there are ways out of this. There are solutions. We can be proactive. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm sure we're similar in age, uh, both in our 40s. Like when we were coming yeah. up, there were punks, right? And, or, or punk began. And punk is supposed to cut across and be a subversive alternative to like suburban conformity and the idea that everything's fine. And now it's like reversing. So it's like, so clearly everything is not fine. So it's almost like to be a punk is to be an optimist. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow. That's amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, yeah. Truly. That's, what <laughs> that's what I'm getting talking to you. It's like, Oh, Malaman's an optimistic punk. That's what you are because it's uh, you're not, you're not naive as you said. And I want to make a point on that too, is that, like you said, it's mistaken on Twitter. I mean, uh, yeah, it's easy and cheap. It's low-hanging fruit to call an optimist naive because it's like then you rid yourself of any burden to, to take, on, take them at the level of substance. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So th- this is really blowing my lid. No, no. I love the optimistic punk because recently I was, I was thinking about how um, like sex and, and violence in like a horror novel, right? I was thinking how sex and violence are, they're already knives. Like they're already sharp objects, uh, sex and violence. So if you caught me with sex or violence in the horror novel, like, I'm not going to be surprised, if that makes sense. Right, in, in almost, right. In almost any form. But if you caught me with something else right. that isn't sex or violence, 
I'm going to be like, oh, boy, that's unsettling. Or, yeah. Oh, man, that's freaky. To me, the new – and I've actually felt this way since, like, my 20s. But listen, after Gigi – see, I just said listen again. After Gigi Allen, like, what is shocking on stage? Okay, nothing is – so it almost became right. at some point what would be shocking is just writing a great book. What's shocking is writing a great song. Like, that's almost more like um, – uh, what's the right word? Like, like you, you pushed the envelope or you broke through right. something than what used to be considered. Like, I'll hear people talking about, you know, this writer pushes the envelope. And I'm like, and then I'll read it. I'm like, oh, all right, yes, I guess. But sex and violence are already knives. Right. It's like they're the standard ingredients. They're what everybody shows up expecting. So, right. yeah, there's going to only be a range within which they can shock it. Uh, yeah, it, there's, there's a cap. I totally agree. And in yeah. this genre, as you can imagine, as you know, you run into a lot of that and a lot of violence. And so it'll be like, you know, oh, this, this, this writer is brutal or this. And sometimes right. I read it, I guess it's brutal, but it's also <laughs> like, I mean, it's like, all right, all right, another face smash. All right, another knife to the throat. I mean, like, it's like, and I'm not desensitized. I, I have felt this way for a long time. And it's the stories that are just, I don't want to call it quiet horror because I even have a, uh, in Sharpie on my wall, it says never mistake quiet horror for something, you know, uh, for the volume being turned down, it's like, right. like quite, it's not quiet. It's just not sex or violence. And if you can scare me in those ways, and there are a lot of writers out there that are working in this way that I'm describing right now, where you're like, oh my God, like this guy, John Lang in his book, The Fisherman is a great example of what we're talking about right now, where it is freaky to the bone and just in its own unsettling way, not, not leaning on anything that you, uh, would expect to be there, that kind of thing. And to me, that pushes an envelope, that reinvents, that sparks more so than just like how badass, you know, how violent, how sexual can I be? Right, right, right. I, I completely understand. And as I get older and I write dark things, like I've only written so much horror, but I've written crime and thrillers and suspense. And I, I realize, uh, especially after having become a father, like I've become more scarce, like I'll spend more time building dread and suspense than necessarily even delivering. Like, uh, and it's for the exact same reason you're saying. It's almost because it's uh, it's obvious to make that move where you pay it off. But, like, if you get into the finer sinews of what's going on, then you can discover things unexpected. Uh, man, you're talking to the right guy about this one. Because with okay. Bird Box, I, I'm writing that book. I get, like, a third of the way in, and I'm like, all right, so we got to probably show the creatures now, right? And then I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. The minute we show the creatures, this whole... This tension's like gone, you know? And so I kept going and I'm halfway in the novel. I'm like, well, now, come on, you gotta show the monster now, right? Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If I show that creature, at some point you're like, oh, I'm never going to show this. Yeah. And this, that bowstring. And so it's exactly what you just said, where it, you, I absolutely spent more time building the suspense than, than delivering it on it. Like, never even did, actually. Right. And, yeah. Bowstring is such a good word. And I think that's why the novel was such an event and such a, a, a breakthrough and a statement because, uh, because it, it, it keeps it in the bag like that. And I, well, yeah. And I think that what it says, if it makes a statement in that way, is that like, it's the tension that you came here for, not, not the reveal of some, uh, you know, some creature. You actually came here for the one, for that low one note on the synthesizer that plays to the entire novel and never, never bl blossoms into a full chord. Right, right. What I'm really responding to so strongly is how uh, you're coming from a place of, of your nerve endings. It's gut intuitive 
emotion, which is so key to storytelling. Is that is that an accurate description of how you work? Yep, uh, totally. You know, I saw uh, some people, as you, I'm sure you're, you've talked about this or been asked this a million times, like, do you outline? And I did one time for, a, for that beast of a book I wrote because almost like counterintuitively, like you, what's the right phrase for this? Like you would think that a book that big would be more just free flowing, but no, that one, to finish that one, I needed scaffolding. But mm -hmm. for like the regular size novel, it is coming from like instincts, uh, feeling. Oh, and like you said before, when you were talking about like rhythm, mm -hmm. like I, I think this is the best thing that I got or I've gotten from like the music side to writing. Oh, it's yeah. almost sense of like, like an invisible, like unseen drummer playing along the whole time mm -hmm. in the room with me. And the dude never wears a shirt and he's like loud. <laughs> and he's like behind me. I never see, but, but I'm like, I'm playing to his beat. And when I go into rewrite, then I know what beat he was playing, whether it was four on the floor, whether it was more jazzy, whether it was even frog. I, I've read a more than one rough draft of mine where I was like, oh boy, this, this, this rhythm is frog rock. We got, we might have to straighten this out or, or commit, right? And, and, but there always is the sense of like this, mm, 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 right. like next to me in the room. And whether or not you surround that guy with, you know, a, a, a gazillion noodley guitars, or like I was saying, that one note of Bird Box, that's sort of like, there's your story and there's your rhythm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, it, it, and they uh, they work on similar principles, storytelling and music, or they can. And I'm, what I'm so curious about hearing you describe that, and this becomes an interesting component of working rhythmically or with the musicality you're talking about, is research. Like, is there a research component to your novels, or is it more you mining your own intuitive, you know, recalled truth and just jamming? The latter, but I sometimes I'm embarrassed of that a bit. You, you know, Likewise, the second, yeah. yeah, okay, okay. Like, yeah. like the second book I put out, Allison helped me um, do research on this like desert and stuff. And but even even that, I just I just want it to be this like like the rough draft for me is the apex sort of experience where I'm blasting like a horror soundtrack in the office. The lights are low. It's late at night. Not not all the time, but often. And I'm like. Just go, 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 go. We will fix anything yeah. later. Go, go, yeah, go. And yeah. It's the most gorgeous feeling in the world. I, at some point, I kind of came to this conclusion that, like, inspiration is sort of like in the inverse of a monster. In other words, like, okay. you're not um, scared of him coming. You're scared of him not. And so you're, like, sitting right, right. in your office and you're, like, inspiration is going to be here any second now. He's, he's got to show up any second <laughs> now. And if he doesn't, then I'm not going to get any writing done today, right? And then you're, like... You're like, no, listen, dude, you might have to write say anyway, even though you don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I started to think, and tell me if you feel the same, okay. that if, like, if you wrote every day for, let's say, I don't know, a month, all right, and then you stop, whatever, two months later you go and read that, do you think you would be able to tell me which days you were inspired on? Oh, probably not. I mean, there might be varying degrees, but no, in general, I'm a big believer that you start writing and then the muse appears. Yes, I totally agree. The yeah. same thing as like working out. Like it, you're like you're like oh right. god, I'm freaking going the oh, fuck elliptical today. Like I don't want to do that. But then five six minutes in, you're like rolling and you're breathing That's and it. you're like oh, I'm gonna go longer than normal today and stuff like that. That's exactly it. And I got the uh, the flip. I want to talk about the flip side of this whole process too because you're describing how when you do it, 
especially with the drum beat, like you're so zoned. You're, you're seeking the zone. You want that zone. You want to roll. You can fix any uh, errors or, you know, proofreading matters later, of course. Is it, I'm also getting, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but I'm getting a sense that the big end game is the transference to the quote-unquote end user. In other words, you're drumming, all puns intended, this emotion up so that somebody else's nervous system feels it later. That's yeah. the whole game, right? Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah. the rough draft feels to me almost like a performance, like a live right. show. Right, right. And, and I think I wrote about this in the afterword of Ghoul in the Cape, where it's like the rough draft feels like it's like a live show. And for that, eh, you know, if it's a little speedy on song two, eh, you know, the harmonies are a little off on this. Oh, okay, <laughs> like, then they ended that song not the best. Who gives it? Who gives a care? This room feels electric. And, and but then comes in like, the you know the studio work which is the rewrites then you come in and you're double tracking the vocals you're coming in and you're replacing that guitar line because no it was off but you want that initial take to have the life and energy like you can't frankenstein like a dead take you can't like bring a take to life and that'll be felt forever right right as long as the rough draft has that electricity in that lightning in it it doesn't matter how good or bad or right or wrong it is we can fix all that in the next go-rounds. Right. Frankenstein is such a good way of putting it. And to me, the way I heard that, and it might not be quite quite what you were saying, but what I take away from that is it's basically thinking. Like, you don't want to be sitting there thinking. That's not the idea. It's like you have to liberate this sort of lower subterranean thoughts where they become more, like, fluid and gushy, and it's just emotional. Is that is that? Uh, yes, and that yeah. and those and that space that you're talking about is the one I was talking about that I put writing when I was in that basement in New York. And oh god, I just had a creepy like feeling that what if it's still in that basement in New York? And I need to go <laughs> get my writing, get my like my artistic fire out of that basement in New York. It's still just sitting there. Anyway, but okay. yeah, but I have friends. Right. I have friends that are like brilliant friends that like talk about writing novels and. And they have brilliant ideas, but then I'll, and I'm talking about like a bunch of people yeah. and they're like, but they'll be like, so obviously stuck on a street name, on a character name, on, oh, sure. on, on, the, mean, yeah. on the book, you know, okay, here, check this out. Okay. So I think one of the advantages of being a prolific, and I'll use that as like a noun, I am a prolific. I think one of the okay. advantages is that if you're only working on one book for like, let's say 10 years, the full spotlight is on this book. Okay. Right. And you feel like you need to be represented in full in this book. All of me has to be in this. The right. street have to be intentional. The, the character, like I, this is me, but that's also me. Okay. But when you have like, when you're starting to work on book four or book five, you're, that spotlight is like dispersed. Now you're like, no, I already, you know, I, I did that in Wendy. I did that in Bird Box. I did that in right. Unburied Carol. And when you get to 35 books, it's like you feel like you could literally write a novel from the point of view with, from someone you don't agree with at all, like on anything. Right. Like, and, it, and that somehow represent you, represents you. In other words, I pretty early on started to see things as it's the body of work that represents you in full not a singular work. Right. And, and, right. and part of the reason I, I came to this was there was a video store near where we lived in New York um, that had all the movies arranged by director. So you would like go and watch everything by this guy or this girl. And so you would get the whole body of work. Like we would, you know, seven nights in a row of Cassavetes, like 
30 nights in a row of Woody Allen, like uh, 10 nights in a row of uh, um, uh, Tarantino. You see what I'm saying? Sure, and, sure, sure. and I think that somewhere in there, it became sort of like the sense of like, it's the, bo- oh, and Hitchcock for sure. It's the body of work. Like, oh, maybe you didn't like uh, The Trouble with Harry, but mm-hmm. you love Psycho. And it starts to become like, even with someone like Stephen King, even if you don't like one of his books, there's something endearing about not liking some of the books in the, in the, in the canon. Like, that to me is where early writers, beginning writers, and these friends I was talking about a second ago, that's what they're not like able to see yet is that this doesn't have to represent you in full. This is one story that you are telling. Right, and, right. So, in other words, you don't have to be precious. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, yeah it was a much quicker way of saying no, it. No, no, I love it. Well, you took, you took, <laughs> You took me to a whole other, I'm going to cast a much bigger net. Like if you, in describing the large body of work, you're describing a sort of omni-consciousness. Like I could literally, or, or you could literally write a book that's like somebody that has oppositional points of view to your own. So now you're urging me to ask, are you spiritual in your orientation? Are you of, and you also got me here when you suddenly freaked out over there's uh, something being left in that New York apartment. Are you of a mind that there is non-local consciousness? Like, are you magicked out? Yeah. 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 I, it's like, man, I don't know if it's, if you feel this way, but these okay. are the kind of things that are real easy to, um, uh, what's the right word? Put Listen yourself in the problem. Okay. Well, no, well, yeah, 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 for sure. Okay. No, okay. really, okay. these are things that are real easy to like, listen to, to accept, to go with, to, to live by when you're just like alone, when you're like in your office, when you're in your driveway, when you're driving. But the minute you start talking about it, you're like, these kind of things, you're like, ah, shoot. That, 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 that. I'm not like articulating this right or something. It's almost like, mm. like, like animals in a sense. How like, I just get a sense from like, like my dogs are our best friends. I get like a sense of experience with these dogs that is similar to my relationship with art. The fact that the dogs don't articulate actual words to me, I think is maybe good. And the same thing with like what you're talking about right now, the spirituality of art. It's just, again, that goes back to instincts, vibe. Does this right. feel right? Like Brian right. Lewis and I, my manager and I were always talking after a meeting, like, like, ooh, I don't know. Did you feel like, was that, was that like half tank energy? What was that? What was that room? You know? Oh, sure, and, sure, sure. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's so funny. You just led me to my, it's so funny. Not only did you lead me to my other question, but what you did sort of uh, um, embodies the nature of the question. I was going to ask you if you, it's, it's just a sibling to the last thing I asked you if you believe in psychic energy. 100%, yes. Right, because yeah. you have to come out of a room and be like, what was with that room? I mean, it's, it yeah. itself, right? No, but again, uh, it's like the yeah. weird, like if you and I were sitting at a bar, I'm wearing a suit right now. Okay. If you and I were sitting at a bar and I'm like wearing this suit and you're like dressed up and we're having like martinis and blah, blah, and you say, do you believe in psychic energy? I'm like, hell yeah. Like that's like an amazing like moment we're having. But when you're like, when you're like just sort of this, this voice, you know, disembodied voice in like a podcast or radio show and you're like right. i believe like i believe in psychic energy i mean it sounds like you could be any person or say maybe you're maybe but i i guess i'm a little self-conscious about it aren't i and i don't know why oh uh, so in other words you're saying right that uh it's hard to contextualize these things or root or pin them or or dignify or justify them so it's like it's almost like they're too sacred to talk about is that where you're yeah going? yeah right. i almost feel like yeah. i almost feel like like However, Kerouac felt about this, I probably feel similar from from reading what he wrote. However, like George Carlin feels about this, I probably feel felt like feel similar to how he felt. Like a sense like you're still 
like totally of this world. I don't even smoke grass. And like, like you're so totally of this world and you're like, you know, but yes, I do. Not, not only do I believe in those things, but like, I feel like I make decisions based on those things, major decisions. Right. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, you do seem, and what's so fascinating and exciting about this conversation is you do seem to be operating in some sort of like energetic manifestational grid. And Al can vouch, this is not like, I've been on this show as a co-host maybe 60 times now in the past two years. Like, this is not the way I talk. Like, this is like, you got me there. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, I don't suddenly go all gonzo and start, like, breaking the normal parameters of communication. <laughs> now, this is something you, this is an energy you are radiating. And also, I have to underscore, and this is, help, uh, well, I don't want to use the word helpful, but it's instructive for our listeners. Uh, helpful might be a little loaded because it's like, oh, just imitate Josh Mellerman and everything will be the same. I mean, it's all manifestational. But um, it's just so instructive to know that you are as successful as you are because you have established like once in a generation success. You had a book that was such a breakout at such a high level and spurred such a strong body of work uh, at a level well in excess of what happens to most authors, let alone in horror. So it seems like now talking to you and having the interface with you, I'm like, okay, this all goes together because he's, he's got like a Ray Bradbury level of joy. It's like a tidal wave. Yeah, I, yeah, I, that, that's like, I can't even, like, how, how we open this whole thing with the surreal, sur, surreality of, of that fantasy being filled in in colors. And here I am, I used to, uh, um, uh, what's the right word, faux interview myself. And, 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 like, I would be like, so, Mr. Mallerman, like, do you think, you know, not, not questions as good as you're asking today. And I would have, like, arguments with an editor, like, debates with an editor. Sure, that sure. Like, I would be, like, angry about the changes he or she wanted to make. Like, there was no editor. And, like, to... <laughs> oh, got it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> to be sitting here and hear you uh, say what you just said uh, in this interview is just kind of like, wow, dude, wow. This oh, it's, it comes full circle. And also, like, yeah. um, you know, it's interesting also, with all this in mind, you're an artist, you're a writer, you're a musician. That's what you're into. So even though you might have a peripheral or, like, for lack of a better word, casual relationship with non-local consciousness or psychic power or manifestation yeah like to suddenly put it under the spotlight like there's no necessity that you're suddenly going to be all in and invested and have like theories about these things because you're implementing the energy of who and what you are in the course of making art so that's what you are i mean that's your calling that's what excites you yes like like imagine like Imagine if somebody was like, hey, uh, we, need, we need you to come, like, speak about all these things for an hour. Well, well, I could. I mean, we've been talking for, like, an hour here or whatever it is. But we've been, sure. we've been talking for this time here. And, like, yes, it can be done. But I think that something, like, like to name these kind of things, like, okay, okay, okay. For example, okay. I'm working on, like, a new novel. And the other night, Allison is uh, in the other room. And we, uh, we had a cat, as Alan knows. We have a, we have a cat that passed away, like, a week ago. And oh, sorry to hear that. Allison, yeah, it was, oh man, it was brutal, That's brutal. Sorry. And Allison is, is painting. Allison's a brilliant artist. She's and Allison, like, Allison is, of course, your wife. Fiance. We, we are, congratulations. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. And Allison is painting this like, like mural of Frankie on, just on the wall of inside the house, like in the entranceway of the house. Well, okay. and she's really a great artist. And then while she's doing that, I was like, you know, I used to, you know, I used to write, um, what do you call it, a book, out, I got not outlines, but like notes for a book on the roof of the, the band van. I used to write it on the walls of like the first apartment I had in New York. And then I'm like, so why, why, haven't, why haven't I done that in a minute? Like I now what? Because I bought a house now because we have like a pool because like, oh, I don't write on these walls. 
So mm-hmm. Allison's Peyton mm-hmm. Gatwall. I came into my office and I'm like just covering this wall with like notes for like the next album or sorry for the next um next book. Right. <laughs> I, it's hard to explain. Like it's almost isn't even the notes that are going to be helpful. It's seeing the writing on the office sure. wall. That's going to be helpful. And how do you right. like, that? How do you right. like, so, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. If, right. You know what? If you even dared to try to articulate it, you would rob it of its poetry. Like it right. just is like, that's just the way it is. It's like, it has to be there. Right. It's just, it's just like, it's like you look, Oh man. Okay. We're rolling. We're still like, you're right. still doing We're still this. Yep. Right. There's an eternity. Wait. So you said the book is coming out in September. Yeah. September 20th. Daphne, which is a perfect uh, time. It was originally going to come out in August, but I'm glad they moved it because now it's autumn, but not too late for Halloween. So like a reader could maybe have this, you know, have read this in October, which is like ideal, you know? Right. Cause you want that sort of cozy October feeling. For, for this book, especially. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Josh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. It's fantastic. Yeah, same. Uh, I absolutely loved it. And I do wish that we were sitting at a bar with, in suits drinking martinis. I don't know why I picked that. I mean, it's not like yeah. we're like, we're like Frank Sinatra. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, no. From your mouth to God's ears at some point. Yes, I, I love it. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, Josh, thank you very much for taking the time to come on and talk about your books, your music, your life, and everything like that. And we really appreciate it. Uh, of course, we'll have your website and books and everything up in ours so people can find you. Not that they need to, because they probably can find you already. Unless, of course, you want to give out something that they don't have already. Phone number, address. Yes. Yeah. You know what, Alan? I, I did that on New Year's. I got a little drunk, and I put on New Year's like, hey, if anyone wants to call... My phone was like flooded, and I and oh I, my goodness! Yeah. Like, I answered like call after call, and it was the everyone that called was so nice. They're like, "Um, happy New Year!" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm here!" Oh, there you go. Finally, yeah, you someone never, was like, know. "Yeah, yeah." Someone was like, "Dude, you got you got to take your phone number off, off online. You can't leave it on there." And I did. Right. I got it. Well, you can get to trouble. You know, Eric does that all the time. So. Yeah. <laughs> never, yeah. never. He'll never walk yeah. the same. Yeah. It's always- <laughs> That's always so yeah. Well, well, thank you, uh, Josh. I know you got to go to. Uh, you're going to go see your fiance play or something in a band or something. Yep. So she she has a show tonight up by like the Thumb in Michigan, and um, I we're about an hour away, and so the minute we're done here, I'm going to just drive her there and get her there like 45 minutes early and watch her sing. Yeah, she's singing like French songs with uh oh, nice. with a great guitar player tonight. So I'm going to go watch them. Sean Blackman. I'm going to go watch the two of them. Oh, fantastic! Have fun. Thank you. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website in the Shapiro Report. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.